Tanya? Hi. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm very well. Nice to meet you virtually. It's nice to meet you virtually as well. <laughs> anytime, anytime. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm sure you've done a bunch of... Um, uh, I, I watched a bit of a, a Facebook Live chat, I think you were oh, a part right. of. Not yes, too yes, long yes. ago. And I know you spoke with um, with Jesse from Canada Land. And yeah. so I'm sure you, and again, so you've answered this question so many times, but um, how are you and your family coping at this time? Um, you know, so far, I think that we're doing okay. I mean, like, what day are we in now? I mean, day 44, day 45, something, yeah, something, something like that. that. Yeah. yeah. You know, sometimes the days go by so slowly and then some days they go by so quickly <laughs> and like, I can't believe what time it is. Um, I find that routine helps, um, you know, like trying yeah. to, trying to write for a few hours or do whatever I need to do for a few hours. But um, it took me a long time to figure that out. Like, you know, the first few weeks I was, basically it was really tough for me to do anything I think. and so usually would you go into an office um you know not really um not really you know i would go to a coffee shop or um yeah or a library okay. sometimes All right. but um but no i i work from home now i mean i left the star um I left the Star technically, the Toronto Star, in um, end of December, I guess. But to be honest with you, I hadn't really been in the office. I've been filing remotely mm -hmm. from for about at least a year, year and a half. Um, yeah. So I was already used to working on my own. And, you know, when you're a writer, when you write books, mm -hmm. you write. You know, you spend a lot of time by yourself. Yeah. Because you I, have to. In isolation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is yeah. your, what, what, like, so how do, how do you write? Do you, do you know what you're going to write when you, when you quote unquote sit down? Do you have an idea or, um, only because I speak a lot to musicians, you know, do you sort of let things come to you and pour out of you? Um, I let things come to me. Mm. That's why I find it more difficult to um, to sit and force words out. I find that very um, unnatural. I kick mm. things around in my head quite a while. I think about what I'm going to say. I think about I think about certain issues. You know, um, and I sort of struggle with it mentally before I sit down to actually write my thoughts down. So and sometimes that takes a while to get to, and sometimes it doesn't. Mm. Sometimes the words are right there, and sometimes they're not. You have to wait for them. Interesting. I want to, I'm, I'll probably come back to, to asking that, but you, you mentioned sort of, you know, finding the time to sit down at home and, and write. Um, I found out um, that you had covered SARS so many years ago. Yes. Um, 
are you are you seeing how diff I know you're not covering COVID nineteen, but what do you see that's the same? What do you see that's different in terms of how the public is reacting, what the politicians are doing? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I covered SARS um, 16 years ago. I was pregnant with my daughter at the time, and mm. um, I was actually the health reporter at the Star. So oh. it was, yeah, it was my job actually to cover an infectious disease outbreak. So it was a pretty weird experience considering I was pregnant. Yeah. And yeah, and and also weird part of this is that my um my husband at the time he um he broke his leg and ended up in hospital. Oh my goodness. So he was in hospital with a broken leg. I was pregnant with my daughter and we had a two-year-old son at home. Wow. And so is this yeah. something you wanted to pursue? Is this like the journalist in you that's just hungry for an, an interesting story or was it, it like, was, Tanya, this is your beat, go and do it. It was one of, it was kind of uh, both, you know, like you, you work your whole career for the big story and then the big story comes just as all of this other stuff comes, right? Like, you know, David breaking his leg, my, my pregnancy with my daughter and then my son, you know, being at home. So my mom was a huge, huge help. Um, and uh, that's, she's always been a very big help of mine though and a big supporter. Um, and I, I wouldn't be able to do the work I do without her. And that's actually mm. been the big difference um, is mm. family, you know, like we, um, I can't see my mom now, right? I mean, oh yeah, wow. She doesn't that's live right. with us. So it's, that's been difficult and different. Um, and now of course my children are, are older. I mean, my son is 18, my daughter is 16. And they're essentially self-sufficient, but- They're at home, I imagine? Sorry? They're at home, I imagine, with you? Yes, yes okay. they are, they're at home now. Yeah, uh, my son went, well, he does go to Carleton and so, when all this started happening, that is uh, one thing I think I learned from SARS. I went up to get him pretty quick mm -hmm. and bring him home to Toronto because I thought this is just going to get worse and worse. And this is very different from SARS in the scope of it. I mean, yeah, we didn't see anything like this with SARS. SARS was frightening and and how it struck people and how it how deadly it was, but this this is a different kind of of fright with this virus. I remember, I think at the time, my mom was a nurse in a doctor's office, oh. and she had, so they told her to quarantine. Um, and at the time, you know, what what is this whole idea of quarantining? Yeah. So I remember her being, so she couldn't, this was weird, because I remember this. She couldn't leave her home, but other people could come and see her, was, was what she said. So I remember, yeah. I remember going to visit her. I remember her wearing a mask. Um, 
and I didn't get it why other people could come and see her, but she couldn't go and see other people. Right. Um, but again, that, that just might have been what she interpreted, but you're right. It wasn't the same scope. It wasn't like, okay, we're all, the whole world is in this together. Let's shut her down. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what we're seeing now and just who this virus kills, you know, and how indiscriminate it, it can be sometimes from youth to what we've seen in New York City is just atrocious. We've seen in Italy. And yeah. Um, yeah, I have to tell you, like, I, I, I have to tell you that I, I, I am not missing the newsroom right now. I felt like I got, uh, you know, I was so busy during SARS and trying to juggle so many things. I just actually feel very grateful to be a reader and not writing about this. Yeah. And I, I, and I've, and I've heard that, you know, when this whole start, when this whole thing started, I had heard through the news that, um, you know, the government had to be, had to do something with the indigenous communities. Uh, and again, I was thinking I, I, in my head, I'm going, I don't understand because in my head, this is what I was thinking. Okay. They, they outside of, if you're in the city, uh, if you're in a remote community, I didn't understand the impact on indigenous communities that were remote. Uh, right. Is there something different? Is there something we need to pay, pay attention to in that regards? 100%. I mean, one of the things that I remember from the start of this pandemic is feeling angry about the lack of coverage when it came to our communities, our First Nations communities, because there is such an, an inequity in healthcare in this country. The hmm. communities in the for instance, Northern Ontario, almost all of them, with the exception of Moose Factory on the James Bay Coast, I mean, the Anishinaabe Athey Nation communities, for instance, they do not have doctors in the community. So we're talking about 49 fly-in communities in the North that do not have properly stocked uh, health clinics. Some places do not have running water, clean water, I mean, it's impossible to fight an infectious disease outbreak, a pandemic, if you don't have access to clean water. If you mm. don't have access to beds or proper nursing care, I mean, there's always been two tiers of healthcare in this country, and a pandemic blows that wide open. The communities had no choice but to, as soon as this happened, limit who was coming in and out of the communities. I mean, that had to be locked down right away. And I have to say, um, the communities have done an amazing job. That did happen right away. People have been out, um, you know, stopping cars, not letting people through, um, making sure the only people that are getting in the community are the people that live in the community and community members. It's very dangerous. It is wildly dangerous, this pandemic what it could do to our communities, yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I want to sort of piggyback on that because we've seen, um, at least here in Ontario, the two levels of government, the Ontario government and the federal government, um, sort of loosen the purse strings so much, like money is being thrown all over the place, you know, programs are being funded 
Um, no one seems to be sort of arguing that, yeah, more money needs to go here, there. And one of the questions I've asked a couple of friends is, does this change when this is all over? You know, so for example, it's fine and good that uh, Doug Ford says we need to pay our front lines. I don't know what it was, an extra $4 an hour or something along those lines. And so I ask, will, will this continue? Will we still, quote unquote, respect, you know, people that give us groceries and, you know, people that drive the trucks? And in that same vein, um, you know, my brother and I just knock our heads and don't understand that in this vast country that has probably the most fresh water, why there are communities that don't have that, that don't have fresh drinking water in 2020. Um, and, and now that we sort of are all in this together, do our leaders look in the mirror and say, you know, when now and when this is done, we all need to make sure that we have sort of these basic necessities of life. I'm curious what you think, you know, when, when we come out of our homes, what's your sense on how we're going to behave? I hope that people are going to see the world differently. I hope that people are going to see the great inequities that we have in not just this country, but in, in all Western and non-Western nations, if you can use that phrase. I mean, the 1%, this is just making things worse. It's dividing people worse. It's dividing the haves and the have-nots. Inequality is slapping us in the face with the pandemic. You can see it from the lack of healthcare in our First Nations communities. Mm -hmm. You can see it when people in Detroit have no choice but to take the bus, or people in Toronto have no choice but to take the bus because they are essential workers, yet there's yeah. no social distancing on the bus, right? You know, there's um, it's almost impossible. There's um, two sets of rules. There's people that have and the people that do not. Mm -hmm. And poverty, the effects of poverty is so blatant through this. I mean, the use yeah. of food banks, the people that um, have tenuous jobs, the people that have lost their jobs. I mean, where do they go? How do they exist? Mm -hmm. This is, we have to ask ourselves all of these things. You know, I remember speaking about the need for a basic income. And this is something that Kathleen Wynne's government in Ontario did. One of the you know, last programs she brought into Ontario before she lost power. And there was a, um, an experiment. And they picked a few cities in yeah. Ontario to see if the basic income would work, right? And Thunder Bay was one of those cities. And if oh. basic income does work. You know, it lets people have the necessities of life. And I think that there's going to be some serious discussion around the need for bringing in basic income for people mm -hmm. so we don't see this horrible struggle. You know, I, I would like to see that. I think that that's a good thing to do. I think that we also need to have a very 
hard look. You know, you said about Canadians looking themselves in the mirror, people looking themselves in the mirror, and that's always been the case when it comes to Indigenous governance and Indigenous rights. But as a society in general, we really have to realize who's doing what and how we're treating people. It's almost as if this pandemic has uh, made us see each other uh, in a way that we've never before. Um, yep. You know, we, we sort of hide and it's like the other, um, they're on the other side of the street, they're in another community, it's not here, it's not me, yep. I'm so busy. We've been forced to slow down. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, wow, every day we're hearing about so many different types of people that all of a sudden we understand that they need help and they've always needed help. Yep. But now we're, we're seeing it. Right. And it's not just about, it's not really just about help. It's about equity, right? Uh, and it's yeah, about you're right. Society functions That's right. As a just society, you know, this concept of a just and fair society and what that means and how, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. If you, if you give someone a hand up, they will be helped and they will figure it out, mm -hmm. you know, and that's what's needed. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that, uh, I'm hoping that things change for the better. I'm, I'm, uh, unfortunately I'm a cynic at times. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping that, um, we've seen that, that our eyes have been opened. That, that's sort of my hope. Um, I know. I, you know? I do too, you know, and I think the longer that this goes on, hopefully that's going to lead to more people having their eyes opened and, you know, considering a concept like a basic income for everyone. Yeah. Um, let's move to your writing. Let's talk about your, your, your books. Um, a couple of years ago, I think soon after you released it, I, I'm trying to think whether Seven Fallen Feathers came out while the rest of the country was celebrating Canada 150. I can't remember exactly. Um, yeah, it, it, did, it did. It it did. So around that time, I said, okay, I need to learn more, right? So I, I was on the um, I was on the search for Indigenous guests for my podcast. I I wanted to learn as much as I could, um, and so your book Seven Fallen Feathers became available. I went to the library, I picked it up. And to be honest, as before I even read it, I go, okay, here's great. Here's a great fiction story. I'm going to learn about indigenous culture. And as, as I started reading it, I got hit so hard about the truth in this book. Um, at the time, I hadn't finished reading it. I've since finished your, your second book, All Our Relations. Um, but it was so, so heavy. And, and when I finished All Our Relations, I think just yesterday, um, oh. I almost started crying, um, especially your ending. Like right now, I'm start. It's it's like heavy, um, but I want to go back to Seven Fallen Feathers because at the time you hadn't written a book, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were going to Thunder Bay because you wanted to write an article about voting in Indigenous communities. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, I pitched to my editors um, a book. Or sorry, I pitched to my editors. Uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, a story um, because it was the election. It was the 2011 election campaign, and yeah. I was the provincial affairs reporter at the legislature. 
Okay. And I, you know, I was pretty green um, as a political reporter, but when there's a federal election, I mean, the only story that everybody wants to be on is the federal election. And if you're a provincial reporter, you don't really, don't really get that chance, especially if you're the green one. And um, yeah. I knew that if I wanted to join the, join the federal election team, I had to come up with something. And so I, ah. I pitched a story about why is it indigenous people don't vote in elections. And you got to keep in mind that this is 2011. So this is before I don't know more. This was before the oh, proliferation like... of social media, right? And Twitter, um, this was a very different time. This was before right. the release yeah. of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report in 2015. So Canada was, believe it or not, was very different, you know, was not as, and I don't even think Canada is anywhere near to, um, understanding now than they need to be, but back then it was even worse. That was 2011. So when I pitched the story, my editor said, "You know, what an exotic idea! Why don't you go?" Oh my god! Story? Okay. So I did. I went to. Um, I said, "You know, I got to go to Thunder Bay to do it." And you know, the reason why I have to go to Thunder Bay is because that's where my mom is from. My mom was raised in the traditional territory of Fort William First Nation and in the bush and um, I knew that I would be able to meet up with the then Grand Chief of Anishinaabe Aski Nation, Stan Baerty. And I had known him from um, before and from Queen's Park and I knew he had an office in Thunder Bay because his territory, which is the Anishinaabe Aski Nation territory, is Treaty Number no. 9 territory which is north of Thunder Bay. Mm -hmm. And it's those um, 49 northern, almost almost all of them are um, fly-in communities. Um, some Treaty 5 communities, so near the Manitoba border, are part of Anishinaabe Aski Nation. And they have a, uh, an office in Thunder Bay because in order to, if you want to access services, and you live in one of those communities, you have to come to Thunder Bay. If you want to, you know, go to a, a movie theater, if you want to go to a restaurant, if you want to have an x-ray, if you want wow. to see a psychiatrist, if you want to access the job market or go to, um, you know, do anything really by a car, uh, you have to go to Thunder Bay. Mm -hmm. um, go to so, school. Or to go to school. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's um, that's why I went to Thunder Bay, and I sat and I talked to Stan, and it was in the course of that interview where I thought I was going to be talking about the election, and yeah. he started quizzing me, "Why aren't you writing a story about Jordan, a missing fifteen-year-old boy?" Hmm. And that's when I first found out about the seven fallen feathers. And was that? How hard, maybe it wasn't hard, but did you have to struggle with yourself on leaving that story that you hoped would sort of get you into the federal election coverage to follow sort of a longer thread? You know, that was only momentary. Um, there was okay. a, honestly, about 10 minutes of 
you know, me asking about the election and him talking about Jordan. Um, and I was frustrated then going, you know, oh my gosh, he's not, I must be mumbling or he's not listening to me or I'm, you know, <laughs> what a waste. I've gone all this way and I'm not going to get the story that I came for because I knew that if I was to tell my editors, I, you know, instead I'm going to do a story about a missing 15 year old boy, they would probably not, you know, and, and a missing First Nations boy, they probably would not take the story. Yeah. So, um, so that only lasted about 10, 15 minutes. And then I sort of gave my head a shake and I realized where I was, mm. who I was sitting with, and I realized who I am and that I mm. needed to show respect and listen to what I was being told. And after that, there was no looking back. Like when he said to me, Jordan, because that's when he said that Jordan was the seventh student to go missing or to die in Thunder Bay since 2000. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that, that was, as so I can't remember how far I got in your book before I had to return to the library, but that was like heavy, heavy stuff. Um, and I think mentally I just wasn't ready to, to finish that book, but I'm glad that I picked up, uh, all our relations. Um, but, but Another tell me, <laughs> it's, it's heavy, uh, for me, thankfully it was shorter so that I could, um, I, I don't know if there, if it's, I have, I have guilt or I have paid, I don't know what it is. Um, or if it's just because of it's, it's a human story. Uh, at the very essence and how we treat or mistreat each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm interested in your relationship with Thunder Bay. Um, my, my initial picture of Thunder Bay was, was similar to probably people that, that uh, like my parents, when they immigrated to Canada, right? They just saw beautiful mountains. They saw, yeah. they saw the summer photos, right? So Thunder Bay was like, is, is like that, has been like that for me in the past, where it's like a beautiful place way up north with this huge rock, beautiful water, and just wilderness and, and beauty. Right. Um, right. And then there had to be that podcast, Thunder Bay. Yeah. Um, and then I'm like, oh my God, is this place... So it's like, there's beauty that, you, yeah, beauty that you see with your eyes, but then is it this horrible place that, mm-hmm. that horrible things happen to people? Um, but Thunder Bay is almost like, I, I know it's not home home, but it's, it's close to your home. Is that correct? Like your ancestral yeah, home? Yeah. Every, yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. My mom was, you know, my mom was, was born there and yeah. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time there. I still do. Yeah. So what's what's your relationship with with Thunder Bay? Is it is it just is it the people? Is it the uh, idyllic? What is what is your your relationship with that place? Um, I love Thunder Bay. I'm in Thunder Bay all the time. I mean, that was actually the last spot I was in um, before before the pandemic and the lockdown. I was on mm-hmm. a flight coming from Thunder Bay on March 12th. Um, oh, oh wow! Right before, jeez. Yeah, right before. It yeah. Just, uh, yeah. Um, actually, we were recording a podcast. Um, actually, I'm doing a podcast on the seven grandfather teachings. And so um, okay. that's why I was there. And um, I, I very much love Thunder Bay. I love being there. I love being on the land. I love being with the people in Thunder Bay, you know, um, mm. 
a lot of really good people in Thunder Bay. A lot of good people okay. in Thunder Bay. A lot of, yeah, like I, I know lots of, um, you know, there's lots of First Nations people in Thunder Bay that I know and I love. I've got great friends there. I mean, like I'm, I'm home there, right? Wonderful. Okay. So you've, 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 uh, you've given me hope to, uh, that, that one day when I go visit that there'll be, uh, there'll be, there'll be some beauty up there. Oh, there's lots of beauty. Okay. Good, good, good. Um, so soon, soon after Seven Fallen Feathers, um, you got, I don't know if it's chosen or picked to do the Massey Lectures. Yep. Which then tr turned into this book, All Our Relations. Yep. Um, I know that your first lecture was in Thunder Bay and, and you sort of was, you know, you, you told the, the Massey people, I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, if, if we're going to do this, the first one's in Thunder Bay. Um, yep. I can imagine why it was important for you. Um, how emotional was it for you to speak there with sort of your, if I could use the word family, with, with like your family and your friends being there rather than maybe every other place you went to were, were really strangers? It was wildly emotional. Um, you know, I didn't know how they were going to take the the city was going to take the Massey lectures right I didn't know how the city was going to take me really because um the other times that I had been in Thunder Bay um you know it was never like this it was never you know the the community theater where we held the first Massey lecture it seats 1500 people and we had nearly 1900 people but before then, we didn't know who was going to come. And it was so incredible, too, you know, because we put the first Matthew lecture on with with Anishinaabe Askey Nation, with the uh, Grand Chief Alvin Fiddler, and with Fort William First Nation. It was very much a joint mm. evening. It was so special. We had the Nan drum there that opened everything. We had Brie Peltier sing the water song from Fort William First Nation with her drum. And it was so amazing, too. And as the elder from Fort William, I felt so bad. Like, all of us, nobody had spoken before to 1,500 people. Like, nobody had got on stage that day before wow. I did. And wow. so we were all in the same boat. We were all, like, wildly nervous. And we just didn't know. We didn't know if people were going to come. We didn't know what their reaction would be. And... Nan and Fort William, they, they threw the event open. It was actually Anishinaabe Asking Nation. They, um, they made the event free. So okay. we for sure didn't know who was going to come and what the reaction would be. And they did that. So it would be a community event and that all would be welcome. So hmm. we as Anishinaabe people could show how we do things. And we were amazed by the response. You know, um, people came, and it was it was quite an evening. Quite an evening. Wow! What was what was what did people say after? Like what, what as they come up to you? Um, what was the reception like afterwards? It was fantastic. You know, there was a feeling of community. There was a feeling of love, and there was a feeling I of hope. Hmm. Of hope for our youth and for the future and of unity 
Wow. And so as, as you traveled across the country giving the lecture, and I don't know how it works. Is it the same lecture that you give? No, it's five different lectures. Oh. So, you know, you know how you read the book, All Our yeah. Relations? Well, you write the book first, and then from the book you take, um, you write oh. lectures. And so there were five different lectures. Okay, so you write the book first, and then you, you, you put together a lecture. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. So, so then we had, then what was your, what was your theme in Thunder Bay? What was the theme of that lecture? Um, that lecture was the, the, the beginning. It's, you know, you have to sort of lay out okay. what I'm going to be talking about as the Massey lecture. And what I was speaking of was of why I started the Massey lectures as part of my Atkinson fellowship. I was, um, mm -hmm. I taken, um, a, a year off from the start in order to be the Atkinson fellow and um, my topic so you get to pick one topic that um, hopefully changes public policy in Canada and my topic that I really wanted to drill down on and find out more and more about was why it is youth in our communities are taking their lives in record numbers. Hmm. And the more I researched about that and instinctively knew, you know, that this is, this is so much more than a, this, this is absolutely not a simple, there aren't, it's not a simple reason why, and there are no simple answers or fixes because at the root of what has been happening to our people is the violent separation of us from the land. And the effects of genocide, continued genocide since colonization. And all of these things lead to why it is our youth are taking their lives. And so the first lecture though, it had to be of sort of setting the stage, talking about these things, talking about how the world has seen us in the days you know, after colonization, during the Victorian era, the uh, the thought of the noble savage, what that mm -hmm. means, and the damage that that did to us, you know, like it's, um, like we weren't just hanging around in loincloth in the bush waiting to be saved before the settlers got here. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a thriving society, anywhere between 75 million to 90 million people lived North and South America. And that was before contact. We had systems of governance. We knew how to manage the land and the animals. We had ways of life and culture and language. You know, and that was not seen as good enough to the people that got here 500 years ago because of various things, you know, the, 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 the Western Christian, Judeo-Christian belief that you know, we have a parliament, we have, um, we have a religious system, we have ships, we have flags. So we must be the ones that are hmm. harder and better. You know, just a very different way of seeing the world. And also too, the, the Christian God, or the, you know, is the be all end all, is, you know, you need man. Mm -hmm. And everything falls from there, which is a very different viewpoint from the Anishinaabe worldview, for instance, that believes that we are all connected. 
I am connected to the tree that I'm looking at right now. I'm connected to the land. I'm connected to the grass, to the birds. We're all one. We're all part of a continuum of life. Mm. And that very much is different from the Judeo-Christian viewpoint of the world. And that clashed very much so. So I talked a lot about that during my first lecture. And I talked a lot about how not just here that things changed and it's not just here where we have our kids taking their lives if you look at indigenous communities that have been colonized throughout the world you will see the exact same pattern look at australia look at the sami people in northern sweden and norway and in um, finland yeah i was shocked america it's all the same time and time again yeah. And as you mentioned, there's no, there's no easy fix, is there? Or is there? No. Well, well, you know, I guess the equity, you know, equality. Mm-hmm. If we could take a giant eraser and stamp out racism and and make everything fair and equitable, share power. I guess yeah. that's the easy answer. That's so getting the, there. That's yeah. <laughs> You you write in your in your book, um, what's the line? Power is legislated into making proposals for money. That's sort of mm-hmm. the the relationship between the indigenous people and the, I guess the federal government. Right. So rather than sort of being empowered to do something, the only power they have is to write a proposal. Right. Um, because what I was meaning there was, you know, under the Indian Act, for example, I mean, um, and the Indian Act is a piece of racist legislation that has been on in Canada's books since 1876, and it governs the life of every single status Indian in this country. So, and community, you know, it, it imposed a band council system, it imposed reserve systems along with the treaty. It imposed the fact that you must send your children to Indian residential school. There were 139 of them between 18, the mid 1800s to 1996. 150,000 children were taken away from their families, their homes, and their language. That was in the Indian Act, you had to do that. The Indian Act even made it so if you wanted to vote in a federal election, you had to give up your status as a as an indigenous person as a, as a first nations person huh if you if you wanted to hire a lawyer that was a you could not do that under the indian act um wow it was yeah it was horrible you know and the indian act is is still very much present that is nuts and, and they just i just found out my son is uh 14? Yeah, 14 years old. Um, they're just learning about like the, 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 well, I don't know how correct it is, uh, but they're just learning about residential schools. I never learned about it when I was right. in, in, in high school. When I heard the term, I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. You get to go to a school and live there and it's fun and stuff. And that was my thinking. I had no clue until probably, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission or around that time that kids were essentially taken from their families. Yep. Um, yeah, 
they they were. It wasn't essentially, and they no, were in yeah. many cases they were apprehended by the police, the RCMP. And then someone told me that the sixty scoop essentially, well, sorry to use that word, but was the is the same thing or was the same thing? It is. Yeah, there are still like our children, First Nations, and also Black kids are the ones that are in care. You know, it's um, there are more First Nations children now in care across this country than there were at the height of the residential school system that there were in residential schools. Still, at still to this day. Yeah, still. That is nuts. That is, yeah, I do. I that I I can't wrap my head around why why we do that or why we've done that. Wow, I, I, I don't know what to say or where to go uh, from, from that. Is, is it something, is it, are, are we still, is, is, the, is, is society, is, is, is Canada, is the Canadian government still doing this to families and to communities? Yes, legislation was just passed um, in the last government the last Trudeau government before the election to help change things. Legislation was brought forward to give communities the power to set up their own child welfare system and to hopefully begin to reverse this horrible, horrible trend. However, the communities have not been given enough funding, like the funding has not and doesn't appear to be there to match the legislation like you know passing the laws is the easy part mm. but you have to do everything else that goes with passing the law you have to equip the communities with the ability to fulfill the mandate of being in charge of your own child welfare system if that's what the community decides to do yeah it's not just as simple as here's the legislation everything's changed it hasn't you know um so there's there's still much work to be done. You you talked about in in all our relations, probably related to this, that um, uh, I guess what one of the communities that that you were talking about was asking for funding from Health Canada or something along those lines. Yep. But because yep. it was it was uh, you used the words awkward budget cycle, uh, yep. and it, and it, and it got denied. Yep. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the things that, that I hope for is that after all of this, that we sort of say, okay, we need to do a reset on how we treat people and how we treat each other um, and, and change it. I, I had the, the good fortune of going to Eastern Europe this past summer uh, and going to, um, oh my God, the name escapes me, Auschwitz. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. To, to the, to the, and seeing the gas chambers and walking through them and seeing what they did, what the Nazis did to the Jews. And I thought to myself, we're still doing this to people. You know, we're not, we might not be putting people into gas chambers, but we're still, um, I use the word like othering. We're still othering people and we, we're, we're still mistreating each other. Um, you know, in, in 2020, um, 
and one would have, and I would have thought that we would have learned from our mistakes and sort of changed things, but I, I don't know. Um, yeah, like you said, it's easy to say what we want to have happen, but then to to change the system, it's like it's it's stacked and it, and it's hard and it and it's it it takes it takes fighting over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Well, it takes political will. It takes political yes. will of not just the leaders, but of the people. The people in this country have to want to change. You know, yeah. um, and holding politicians to account and the people demanding change. That's what needs to happen. And yeah. until that happens, we will not see change. Yeah, and it's not as simple. Like I've had these conversations with friends and family about they tell me that you know, oh, the, you know, residential schools, that was way back when. And I tried to try to tell them, I said, you know, you just, it's not just a moment and you forget. It's not like everyone can compartmentalize this. This is like a thing that has happened to people, you know, and I try to tell them like my community was kicked out of Uganda back in the late sixties, early seventies. Right. And there's still trauma that my parents and their family yeah. Uh, goes through, and I said, it's it's it's. Think of that. Put yourself in that position where a place you've always known as home. You you get kicked. You get forcibly removed. Yeah. Um. Or you you flee from there. Um, yeah. It's not something that you wanted to have happen to yourself. Um. Yeah. And it and it takes. Not only does it take time, but then systems are built that continue to support that in, in the case of uh, Canada's uh, indigenous communities, indigenous peoples, right? Like you yeah. said, you've got the Indian Act and then everything sort of piles one on top of the other, on top of the other. I was shocked that, you know, people think that health is a provincial sort of jurisdiction. And I was shocked that the indigenous peoples don't get covered under that they you, mm -hmm. it's sort of like a direct relationship with health canada mm -hmm. and whether they're equipped to do that or not is it's like beyond me to to understand um how yep. terrible we've we've treated yeah well um, two canadas right yeah yeah it's it's so it's so so true um how do you, you finish your, your book in a very serious, but, but in a way that if one reads, someone could also smile. Um, you know, you, you ask these four questions. Where do I come from? Where am I going? What is my purpose? Who am I? Um, you come, your, your, your dad is Polish. Uh, your mom's from Fort William First Nation. How, how, how do you see yourself? I'm, I'm both, you know, I am, I come from an incredible, amazing dad and an incredible, amazing mom. Mm. And they, they made me and I am, um, it was funny, my friend Alvin uh, Fiddler, he called me a Polnish, which is really <laughs> funny because like Anishinaabe and Polish, right? So Polnish, it's really funny. And that's, um, I would say that's, that's pretty accurate. That's how I see yeah. myself. I see myself as, as I'm, I'm, I'm from both worlds. 
and and we can be that i think everyone can be that can't we we don't have to be one or the other totally you know like you know it's that's that's the difference like you know i'm not i don't live in community i mean i grew up here in toronto right i mean yeah um, i grew up far away from my mom's family and um and actually my dad's family too so it's uh and this is you know this this territory and the Mississaugas of the Credit, this is where I live and I have lived. And yes, my roots are, and I am very much also Anishinaabe, but I'm also part of my dad too. And so what does that make me? That makes me who I am, right? And there's like, I think there's lots of room in Canada for people like me. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, I'm a, I'm a mixed, I'm a mixed person. And yeah, I think there's something special with that. Sure. Something different. Yeah. And, 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 and yeah, that's, that's a great thing to say. That's, that's, that's actually perfect. We sometimes we sort of want to make things too simple and too much in a box so we can put it in the proper shelf um, yeah. and, and put a label on it. But, but it's not as simple as, um, you know, that's, that's why sometimes when I say indigenous, I'm trying to make sure that I'm not like, I don't want to leave anybody out, but I also want to, you know, yeah. there's, there's different customs and cultures. Um, yeah. you know, some people ask, you know, we're Muslim and some people ask why my wife and why our community doesn't wear hijabs. And I go, listen, just, you know, being a Muslim isn't what you might see on television. Right, where exactly. this is what identifies you as as a Muslim, and, and similar with Indigenous peoples, there's so many, yeah, different yep. types, mm-hmm. right? Yep. There's many of us city slickers. <laughs> that is yeah. that is so true. That that just wants some Swiss chalet, right? That's right. You know it. Bougie <laughs> native. Bougie native. <laughs> Naughty Note Reskid song, yeah. Ah, yeah. Um, Tanya, this has been this has been great. Well, I, I thank you very much, Kareem, for having me. Um, it's been a it's been a fun conversation, and you know what's so awesome too is I've been talking to you on far more information than your listeners want to hear on my phone, and I'm about two percent power to go. So oh my goodness! We just made it. We just great, made it. So awesome. Timing. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Anytime and be well, my friend. You too. Okay, take care.